0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 5 this morning. Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5. God's design, identify a line and be blessed, part two. Last week we began in Ecclesiastes 5 with uh, the first 8 verses, understanding if God is God, then that should mean something to us. Uh, It's really a summary of everything that we've talked about in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. Today we're going to culminate with a a conclusion. So if you recall, Solomon has four primary conclusions in the book uh, at various points. This is the the second conclusion that he comes to today as we see almost a doxological idea um, at the end of this passage. Last week, as we spoke about that that first element of of recognizing God's design, um, we talked about... we, We made two points. talked about two primary points. The first, if God is God, enter His presence with ears open and mouth shut. Enter His presence with ears open and mouth shut. And then secondly... If God is God, watch your words and make good on your promises. So on the basis of all that we've learned, God is sovereign. He has a plan and that the blessed are those who align with it. First, you need to stop talking and start listening. Right. And what we mentioned here is that the the point is that you don't come into worship. You don't come into the presence of the Lord trying to justify your own way. You start with the Bible and then you go from there. So you justify your way by the Bible. You don't justify the Bible with your way. We may fool ourselves into twisting God's word to justify our actions and then thinking that we're okay. We might even fool others, but on the day that we stand before God and and He judges the quick and the dead, He will not be fooled. All of the ways that we sought to to twist the word of God or or to to tell God, this is what I think, so I'm going to open my mouth, shut my ears and do it my way. It's not going to work on the day of judgment. And then second, uh, we we recognize that that if God is God, we need to watch our words and make good on our promises. We talked about vows, vows before the Lord, those things that we tell the Lord. We read James 3 verse 2, which tells us that if a man is able to bridle his tongue to control his words, then he really is, is able to control. Control the whole of his body. Uh, does God's authority hold enough weight in your heart that you are fearful to say things to God that cannot be supported by your actions? Uh, men fear to make promises to their earthly authorities and then not live up to those promises because sometimes that can lead to dramatic consequences. Well, do we fear God enough to hold our tongue and to make absolute good on any promises that we would make to the true and living God? And so those were our first two points. We'll hasten directly into our next point. We'll walk through the rest of Ecclesiastes 5 this morning. And in verse 8, we pick up with our third point. If God is God, fear His way and trust His design. If God is God, fear His way and trust His design. Verse 8, Solomon says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province... Marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. So we we effectively covered this point pretty well. When we were in Ecclesiastes 4 When we spoke of the reality of oppression That oppression happens The reality of oppression is in this world But as Solomon finalizes his thoughts In chapter 5 verse 8 uh, He reminds man that You will see oppression You will see the poor be oppressed You will see violent perversions Of justice and judgment And, And he's not just saying that To those who are reading in his day We see this too, don't we? It's still here It's still around, and and we should expect to see it. Perhaps more so, we should be helping our children understand that you're going to see it. Perhaps more so than what we've seen in this generation. We ought to expect to see the poor oppressed, to see justice and judgment perverted, to see wrongs sanctioned by those in power, to see the mob rule by emotion, to see extortion. To see the strong trample the weak. And we don't say this to be pessimistic. We're not saying this to be fatalistic. We don't expect this because there's no hope. We expect this because this is the natural heart, the natural state of the heart of man. The world is in perpetual enmity against God. Man's heart is wicked by default. And so as long as the long suffering of God allows man to live according to the direction of his own rebellious heart, suffering... And oppression and evil will exist. Look, poverty will not be able... Eliminating poverty is not going to eliminate evil. Eliminating illiteracy is not going to eliminate evil. The, the problems that we find in society are not rooted in societal problems. They're rooted in sin problems. So, so Solomon says, don't be surprised. But what he also says here, when he says marvel not at the matter, what he's literally saying there, the word to marvel in the Hebrew literally means to feel anxiety. To feel anxiety over. Over something that is unexpected or to to feel dismay. So he's not saying don't have compassion on the oppressed. Ignore the oppressed. What Solomon's saying is don't let the reality of oppression Get you down. Don't let it strip from you your peace. Don't let it burden you with a weight that would strip from you joy and peace. Solomon is not just saying expected. He's saying in your expectation, don't allow it to cause you undue anxiety. Now, again, he's not saying that we should not care about the poor and oppressed. We can go uh, through the book of Proverbs, through the book of Psalms and find many, many commands uh, in the book of James to care for the poor and the needy and the oppressed, to certainly not be on the oppressing side and to seek to lift up the hands to help those who are in need, who are struggling, who are oppressed. And so we're not saying ignore oppression. Solomon's not saying ignore oppression, but don't allow the reality of a sin-cursed world to Steal from you your joy and your peace. Because God is God. Because God is watching. Is that not what he says here? Because he that is higher than the highest regardeth. And there be higher than they. There is someone higher than the oppressors, isn't there? There's someone greater than the evil. Whether we're talking about spiritual evil, the evil one. Whether we're talking about those wealthy or powerful men who would seek to oppress or those governments who would seek to oppress, there is someone higher than they. So Solomon says, don't let it bring unto your heart anxiety because God is bigger. And then Solomon continues in verses 9 to 17 giving various principles and he's particularly focusing in on the concepts of wealth and power. And we've seen this throughout the book uh, as he talks about wealth and power and its incapacity to satisfy. He says in verse 9, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. So remember, he just said that there's one that is higher than the highest. That no matter who it is on the earth, no matter who it is even in the spiritual realm, God is higher than they. And then he looks at the kings and he says by the way the prophet of the earth is for all even the king is served by the field there's an interesting truth to reckon with when one considers the powerful and the wealthy upon this earth you look at them and it seems as though they can do whatever they want they can get away with all with whatever they want you you read about sports athletes right and they get arrested and then the team gets involved and, and next thing you know all charges are dropped. And you say if that person wasn't an athlete making millions of dollars a year, he would never have had charges dropped. You look at politicians who do things and you say if that wasn't a politician who has his hands in the pockets of so many different people, there's no way they would ever get away with that. And you look at that and that can be frustrating. But he says God is higher. He is higher than the highest of all. There's one that is higher than they. He's watching and by the way, even the kings of the earth are profited by the field by the way even the most powerful man on the earth is dependent upon god's goodness to continue to live isn't he god's grace is what keeps us all alive and if we can have this perspective That when the Bible says in the second half of Matthew 5, verse 45, He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain upon the just and on the unjust. Jesus is literally saying that God is the one who gives the earth rain. God is the one who allows the sun to continue to shine. And no matter how impressive modern technology is, without God, we are doomed. Without God, we have nothing. Without God, we cannot live. Even those kings who shake their fists at God and who oppress and who use their power in all sorts of wrong ways. Never forget that they are under, that, that the only thing that keeps them alive is the grace of God as well. Never forget that. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17, And he, that's Christ, is before all things. And by him all things consist. All things consist. He created all things. And I love this one in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus was the the person through whom the Father chose to make the worlds. But then notice this who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he hath himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high this tells us that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power literally what that means is that he is holding all things together in the context that we just see here in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 through 3 There's really few other valid meanings than to understand that God, that Jesus Christ, holds creation together. We live at the mercy, at the behest of His grace. And if these things are true, then the wealthy, the the powerful, the honorable, the male, the female, the Jew and the Gentile, the adult and the child, the believer and the unbeliever, those who love God, those who hate God, every person, every creature... Is 100% dependent upon the grace of God for their lives, whether they like it or not. God is higher than they. It is God's grace that even sustains the capacity of the wicked to live. We move on. Solomon says in verse 10, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Money cannot satisfy. We've said it many times in this series. A man can earn and earn, but it will never lead him to lasting satisfaction. And this does not mean that money cannot buy temporary enjoyments, but rather money cannot offer lasting satisfaction. Indeed, our Lord admonishes us in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things Which he possesseth If you are defined by what you have Rather than defined by who you are in Christ You're an unhappy person Your life is not about what you have It's about who you are in Christ And if you are in Christ Then your life is eternal And in regard to wealth There are other considerations that come into effect Solomon continues in verse 11 He says when goods increase They are increased that eat them And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. With accumulation comes responsibility. We might interpret this verse both practically and naturally. Practically speaking, a man's house grows in fortune, as it grows in fortune, it's often that his needs grow as well. Now, I'm experienced this in a more practical way as my wife and I are continuing to have children, right, with each child and then as our children grow, uh, it's becoming more expensive to live. The children are eating more food, uh, utility bills are getting higher, of course, right now they're, they're still not taking showers, but as the kids get older still, uh, you know, hot showers, long hot showers, uh, the, the refrigerator trying to keep it full, all of these things, things get expensive that that as goods increase, so increase them that eat them, right? But then uh, it, it's also the case in business, right? As a business grows, you have to hire more people. You have to make more investments, bigger buildings, greater responsibilities. As a church grows, there's greater responsibilities on the church. It costs more to cool the church down when there's more hot bodies in the seats. Uh, it's... Uh, fellowship uh, Whatever it might be it, it takes more more money It takes more time uh, We need more people Need assistant pastors uh, Need more chairs Need bigger buildings All of those things As As goods increase So increase those That use them That eat them And what good is there to wealth And this is the neat part Notice the second half of this What good is there to the owners thereof Save one thing What is the one good thing To the owners of much wealth Beholding of them with their eyes Getting to see others benefit. Solomon says that's the good of having stuff. Getting to see people enjoy that stuff. The blessing of working as a father and husband is seeing my family well cared for. The blessing of Christmas Day is seeing the children enjoy really the fruit of the parents' labor, is it not? As they give to their children gifts. The blessing of owning a business is to think of the number of men and women who feed their families off of the business that you have. The blessing of owning stuff is when you see that stuff used and enjoyed by others. Acts 20.35 reminds us that it's more blessed to give than to receive. What good is there in the increase of goods, but in the increase of being able to see others blessed by those goods? And as we experience this good, as we experience the joy that comes from allowing others to be beneficiaries of our our goods... What are we doing but aligning ourselves with the way God has created us? It's how he's designed us to be. When you see wealthy people, even people that don't know the Lord, don't care about the Lord. When you see wealthy people throw themselves into philanthropy, pour their money into non-profits and into charitable giving, and many do. Giving back to the people, yielding large portions of their fortunes. They do this because in reality, this is the primary blessing of wealth. Because they, they reap a blessing by the common grace of God by giving. The good of owners is to behold the proper use of the goods with their eyes. And so once again, we find that even those who are rejecting God are only truly satisfied when they align with his design. Even those who have rejected God as they pour their money into philanthropic efforts and into charities, they find contentment there as they align with what God has with how God has designed it as they align themselves with God's design. And so we establish a principle. God wants you to live with an open hand. The more you're able to yield the right to what you have and open your hand to others, the more joy you will find. When you give, give with generosity. When you lend, lend without expectation of return. If you will yield your things to God, you will likely, possibly, have less materially in, in, in one sense, but it will be replaced with a contentment that money cannot buy. And if that blessing weren't enough, by the way, Paul, in the direct context of giving, writes this in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. On top of the natural blessing, the joy that comes from seeing others blessed by the, the fruit of our labors, being a cheerful giver pleases God. Isn't that a neat thing? When you think about the God that is higher than the highest that sits in the heavens that looks down upon all the earth and he sees all of time in one span so he sees the end and the beginning at the same time and it's all there and when you are a cheerful giver it pleases that God it makes him happy that's exciting I love that Continuing in verse 12. The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Solomon regards an interesting paradox here. That the man who has little and works hard for everything that he earns sleeps well. Even though he may not have eaten much that day, even though uh, he may not have much, he sleeps well. He's worked hard. His body is tired and, and he, has, he has worked hard for that which is his and he, he sleeps well. On the other hand, He speaks of of a wealthy man, the man of abundance, but in his quest to find satisfaction, he's finding a satisfaction, not in those natural things that God has designed for us to find satisfaction in labor, generosity. He's seeking satisfaction in the wealth and abundance itself, and he's not satisfied and he's often troubled, restless, discontent. What irony is it that satisfaction is found more in those who lack than those who have whereas often those who lack crave to be one of those who has those who have when placing all of their love and trust on their goods remember we're not just we're not talking about a person who loves the Lord and has their money in the proper place underneath God we're not talking about that we're not talking about the person who has his priorities in place we're talking about the man who has placed all of his love and all of his effort and all of his desire upon his goods so that that is what his love and his life are about that person, trusting in uncertain riches, will often find far more misery than their poor counterparts. And I'm not going to go through all of the proofs of this today. But uh, do a study sometime on the people that win the lottery and see how their lives end up. Do a study sometime on the number of, of people who, who are affluent and their suicide rate as compared to those who aren't. It's almost exactly the same. Well, but they have so much more. How can they be unhappy? Because the happiness is not rooted in what you have. And if our life is built on those things, then our life is built on a very, very shallow foundation. And all of these thoughts that Solomon is giving here, and remember, always remember, Solomon does not say, nor does the Bible say, that money is evil. Money is not the root of all evil. You hear that sometimes. That's not what the Bible says. Timothy tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. There's a big difference, isn't there? There's a big difference. And so Solomon is highlighting this idea that those who would love and crave and desire goods and money in the, with the intent to find lasting satisfaction in it will not. Leading all of these thoughts, leading to a singular argument. Verse 13. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. We speak of generosity and the joys found therein. But Solomon has seen a deeper evil. It's an evil which has always been around. It's an evil which pervades every age, always by a different name. The evil of men who keep their own riches, who crave riches, who hoard riches to their own hurt. A society built upon greed so that men do not have a generous spirit. Who crave wealth at every cost. Who will not just gain it through effort, but through oppression and through intimidation, through uh, injustice. Solomon says, it's a sore evil that men crave wealth and keep wealth. And in doing so, place their happiness and contentment and uncertainty uh, on the uncertainty of their riches. And notice how he works this idea out as Solomon continues in verses 14 and 15. He says, but those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth the son, and there is nothing in his hand. And he came forth of his mother, as he came forth of his mother's womb. Naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. So the great evil, as Solomon is fleshing this out, is not just that a person trusts in his riches, but he says the great evil is watching a person who trusts in his riches either lose all of that, or come to the end of his life and realize he can't take it with him. And then, that is when we truly contemplate just how evil the love of money is. Because Solomon first contemplates a man who has riches, and then he says, but those riches perish by evil travail. Uh, what he means by evil travail is that something bad happens and he loses everything. His investments fail, or his properties are lost, or his wealth is confiscated, or uh, he gets sick and he has to pour all of his money into curing his illness. Whatever it might be, uh, he, he had it, he was living well, and then he loses it somehow. And Solomon says, I consider that man who has everything and then loses it so that he doesn't even have anything to give to his children. So even even their inheritance is gone. Everything is gone. And he says, there's a great evil of a man who puts all of his trust in riches and then those riches somehow fall away. He has nothing left. And when you have your entire life invested in something material and that something material crumbles underneath you, What's left of your life? I was talking to a lady in the jail. I've been talking to her for some time now. And uh, her idol was not money, her idol was her children. And then she made wrong choices, and her children were taken away from her. And that's when her life truly fell apart. And she was brought down into a much deeper place than she was before because she lost her idol. Her children were not placed under God. Her children were placed above God. And it's a great evil. When something material, something that can be taken away from us, is taken away from us. And we've put our entire life into them so that they are our life. And when they go away, our life crumbles. Solomon says, that's such a shame. What a, what a devastating thing that is to see a person's life crumble because they put their love on the wrong thing. Now it's not wrong to love your children. But if your children are your idol, what happens if your children are taken away from you? Will that simply end your life? If it does, there's something wrong. It's a great evil. Then in verse 15, Solomon considers another circumstance, and that's the end of life. That's the man who has accumulated, and maybe he hasn't lost it all. But he spent his entire life pouring himself into the accumulation of goods and he gets to the end and he realizes, similar to what Job said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return, right? He realizes finally that he's gonna go and his stuff can't go with him. And there's a great evil in that final recognition of the futility of everything he's poured his life into. Because it's all earthy. It's all this life. And that he's carrying nothing with him into the life to come. And so Solomon continues, verses sixteen and seventeen. And this also is a sore evil. That in all points, as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he in that? uh, Excuse me. What profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. So he continues talking about this man who will die and not take it with him. He says, this man has lived his entire life and he has worked so hard laboring for the wind. What a way to put it, huh? Something you can't see. Something you can't contain. Go outside and try to catch wind in a a jar. No one will be able to say you didn't, but no one will be able to say you did. Wind wind is, is something, it comes, it goes, but you can't contain it. You can't you can't bottle it up, you can't put it in a cage. It's it lacks definition. Solomon says the people that labor all their lives for the stuff of this earth are laboring for the wind. Laboring for something which you just cannot keep. And so he says that this man walks in darkness, devoid of light. What light is that? Well, the scriptures tell us that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The light of truth. The light of the way the world really is. The light of the fact that this life is not all that there is. That there's a life after this life. And that life is eternal. And this life is temporal. And so, if we labor for that which is eternal, we're laboring for something far better than laboring for that which is temporal. He says, this man hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. We'll talk about this idea of his sickness a little bit more in the weeks to come. It's an interesting idea, um, an illness that Solomon is speaking of as we get into chapter 6. Paul warns warns of a similar idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. He says this, but they that will be rich, they not, not, not those that want to be comfortable, but those who pursue riches with their life. Will, uh, uh, excuse me, will be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. We listen to the warnings of the Word of God, and we heed these dangers that there is sorrow and there, there, that there's pain that accompanies the man who play, or woman who places their love on the things of this life at the expense of of the things of the life to come at the expense of God and His people and His Word. So we hear God's Word and we gain wisdom. Our Lord would say it this way in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is There will your heart be also. What a neat thing. That you can take the most treasured possessions that you have. And you can put them in a place where they will not be able to be tarnished. Not be able to be touched. Where you can take your life and you can invest it in eternity. So that on the other side of eternity. When we step from this world into the next. You have waiting for you riches and honor. And you've been heaping them up through obedience and through humility. So that those who spent their entire life seeking to gain in this life will stand before the Lord, uh, relatively speaking, empty-handed. And you will have rewards that simply cannot fade away. Jesus says at the end here, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters in Christ. Where your time is spent is where your heart is. Where your money is spent, that's where your heart is. Where your priorities are put, that is where your heart is. Where your effort is put, that is where your heart is. You can't beat that system. You can't say, well, I love God and I love his word and I love his church and I love giving and I love this and then not do any of it. (laughs) And, yet, and pour all of your time and all of your effort into the things of this life. It doesn't work that way. You can say that, but you're fooling yourself. Because where your heart, where your treasure is, that's where you'll find your heart. Your most prized possessions, your most important things, that's where your heart is. So if God is God, well, first, enter into His presence with ears open and mouth shut. If God is God, second, watch your words and make good on your promises. Third, if God is God, fear His way and trust His design. Recognize God's design. Recognize that God has designed things such as an, an open hand in giving and giving and, and keeping the things of this earth, if I may say, at arm's length and investing in eternity above all. That's where God has designed true joy and blessing. One final point as we close. If God is God, enjoy the good as an extension of a life lived for God. Let's, let's talk about the other side of the coin again. Uh, last week we talked about the other side of the coin uh, in, in our evening service. This week let's talk about the other side of the coin in our morning service. Yes, hold those things of this life at arm's length, but you don't have to reject the things of this life. Okay, You don't have to. You really don't. As a matter of fact, this is another major point in Ecclesiastes. God wants us to live above this world. He he wants us to use the world while not abusing this world. He wants us not to place our affections and lust particularly on the sinful things of this world. But to love not the world does not mean that you have to deny yourself the essential pleasures of human existence. And before we read the next three verses from which we derive this point, and also it's it's Solomon's conclusion to this whole second uh, area here, by the way, I did put more um, outlines on the back table, so if you 'd like an outline for Ecclesiastes to understand how i 've broken it up, you can go grab one of those. I would encourage you to do so um, but one of the things that you learn uh, and let me illustrate here one of the things you learn as parents is that children need boundaries right. That children are happier when they have boundaries. The most unhappy people in our culture are children in our culture. Are those children whose parents have placed upon them no boundaries? Children get frustrated when they don't have boundaries because they don't know how to please. They don't know how to please you. Children get frustrated when they get punished for things they weren't told are wrong because then they're 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 aiming at a moving target. They don't know how to please their parents if their parents have not told them what their parents expect. So children are happy. They're contented, and we've talked about this when we've talked about raising children. They're happy and contented when you make your boundaries, when you make your expectations clear and when you are consistent in enforcing them so that they're not uh, aiming at a moving target so that they know if I do this, I will, I will have this consequence. And so I'm not going to do this. And in not doing this, I know I won't have this consequence and they can live that way. Children love boundaries. Children that have no boundaries are unhappy children. They are frustrated at their lack of boundaries because they, they aren't. Told what is right and what is wrong but when we have clear boundaries our children know what those boundaries are then they can be content and they can operate freely within the bounds of your expressed will so they know what the parents boundaries are and they know as long as I'm within those boundaries I'm free you don't have to tiptoe around your parents wondering what's right and what's wrong and never being feel, feeling free to do anything because if mom and dad are angry today, then they're not going to like it. If mom and dad are happy today, then they'll be fine with it uh, because there's no clear boundaries. If there are clear boundaries, then my children can say, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what my parents say I can do. This is what my parents say I can't do. And they can operate with freedom and joy within those boundaries. Do you know it's the same with God? God has given us boundaries. And those boundaries are not because He dislikes us or because He wants to withhold from us, but because He loves us. Imagine life as God intended it to be In the garden of Eden where mankind operated freely within the bounds that God had given unto them. Uh, There was nothing within these boundaries uh, that they needed that God had not provided for them. Uh, they uh, they, they, They had the ability to eat and to drink and to enjoy themselves. And they had companionship and they had animals and they could have fun together. It's all there. Man could go where he wanted. He could do what he wanted within the bounds of God's character and God's will. So God gives Adam and Eve the freedom to spend their time with only one restriction. And that restriction was, thou shalt not eat of, the, tree of the, knowledge, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, for the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. He put boundaries up, but those boundaries were for their benefit, not for their detriment, for their help, not for their harm, not to withhold something from them that was better, but to keep them from some, from a cheap copy of what they already had that was better. God withheld those things because he knew that those things could not make them happy. But Satan convinced woman... That God was holding something back from them. That their true happiness was to be found outside the boundaries of God's perfect will. That God was not binding them in order to protect them, but rather he was binding them in order to keep them from what was fun, from what was good, from what was happy, from what was best. And so she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having been deceived. And then Adam, having not been deceived, but having voluntarily and willfully rebelled, having listened to his wife, both of which were, were wrong before the Lord, having submitted himself to his wife, and then, and then rebelling against God, knowingly rebelled, ate of the fruit. And when they did so, they placed themselves outside of God's character, will, and perfect provision, and instead sought to do things their own way, according to the desires of their own heart. Not because there was not enough in the garden to content them. Not because God had not bountifully provided for them everything that they needed. But be, not because they did not experience God's love. But because their deceitful hearts convinced them that true happiness was found in that which did not please God. That true happiness was found in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that is in the world, First John tells us. So Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Now certainly that happened literally in history. But it was also symbolic, was it not? Of the first man and woman having chosen their way, having stepped out of the boundaries of God's will and so also being cast out of the blessings of God's provision. If you're not going to live under my will, I'm not going to keep you under my blessing. And so they were cast out of God's blessing as they stepped out of God's will. They knowingly, willfully stepped out of God's will. And notice God didn't yank them back from a leash. He gave them the freedom to do so. But when they chose to step out of God's will, God did revoke the blessing. And friends, what Ecclesiastes is attempting to teach us is just how blessed it is to live inside that fence. The blessing of living inside that fence. Contained within the boundaries of the fence of God's will today. Of the fence that he has given us for today, of his will for you, of his will for me, of his will as it exists, contained within that fence is still everything that you need to be happy. Family, possessions, enjoyment, fun, games, places to go, things to eat and drink, freedom of operation. Everything within the bounds of God's will, we are free to partake in. You may freely eat, God told Adam and Eve. We may freely eat of all that is virtuous and good in the bounds of God's will. And whatever things are not within the boundaries of that fence are not in there because God has ordained them as not being best for us. Can you trust him enough to believe that that's true? That though the world would say, look, you're missing out on fun because of all the things that you're not doing. Because of all of the sins that you're not pursuing, the the lust of the flesh, right, that we can read about in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 and 20. This is where the world says enjoyment lies, happiness lies, contentment lies. You're, you're not happy because you're not pursuing money as your object. You're not happy because you're not pursuing amusement and entertainment as the object of your life. You're not happy because, uh, you're, you're, you're withholding yourself from, from those things that society does for fun. And and that means that you're not happy. You're, you're, you're missing out. And God says, look, within the bounds of my will is everything that will actually make you happy. And if you'll live within them, you'll be content. You don't need to go outside of them to find it. And the problem with many of us Christians is that we misunderstand what the fence of God's will is for. Young people take particular note of this. Throughout history, barriers have been erected for two purposes. The first is to keep people in. And the second is to keep people out. Right? To keep people in or to keep people out. To keep people from leaving or to protect people from that which is outside. Now, by and large, the majority of barriers that have been put up in the world have been put up for the second reason. To keep something out. Back uh, during the Cold War, East and West Berlin were separated by a wall. That was a wall, not to keep people out, but to keep people in. East Berlin was suffering under the failure, that is communism... The economic model of communism. And West Berlin had embraced a a capitalistic free market enterprise society and so was thriving. Nobody wanted to get into East Berlin except maybe to see family. People in East Berlin wanted to get over West Berlin to find opportunity. It was a wall to keep people in. In contrast, today we see walls. Israel has a barrier. That barrier is erected Not to keep people in along the West Bank. Israelis are free to travel beyond that barrier. They're free to come and go as they please. That barrier is erected to keep Palestinian terrorists from having open access to the West Bank of Israel. And the problem is that many Christians see the fence of God's will. Now I'm not talking about standards explicitly. Standards are something we erect to help us stay within the fence. They're fences that we erect... In order to help us not step outside of God's will. I'm not talking about standards here. Your family standards. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's will. God has erected a wall. And many Christians, especially young people, because we're foolhardy and stubborn. See, and we think we know everything. You see that fence as a way to keep you in. Mom and dad aren't letting me. The Bible doesn't let me. I can't. I can't. I won't. I'm not allowed to. And so you see it as a barrier to keep you in. But look, when Adam and Eve partook of... When when Adam and Eve stepped outside of the boundaries of God's will, God was not there fighting them. He allowed them to do it. When we step outside of the bounds of God's will... God, we don't have to, we don't have to scale a wall. Much rather, the walls that God puts up are like that second type of wall. Erected to protect us from that which is without. And this is what Solomon spent he's writing about the life that he spent testing those boundaries. He went outside the wall. That's what Solomon did. He went outside the wall of God's protection, of God's will, of God's expectations, of God's design. And he says, I tried it all. And by the way, again, God did not resist him as he went outside that wall. God let him do it. He went outside that wall. And what he found was that everything that made him truly satisfied was already inside that wall. It was all in the fence. It was all already provided for him, and he didn't have to go out there and be devastated by the world around him to learn that lesson. He says, I I did it. I did it so that you don't have to, as he writes to us today. Solomon's conclusion was that the fence was not God's tyrannical restrictions, but rather a fence of loving protection. A fence that exists so that you have You can eat and you can drink and you can own homes and you can have families and live and laugh and love in virtue, free from the dangers of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of, or the pride of life that will destroy you. The fence of God's will gives you freedom to operate in moral and spiritual safety. Free to pursue relationships in moral and spiritual safety. Free to pursue jobs in moral and spiritual safety. Free to pursue entertainment in moral and spiritual safety. Free to pursue every aspect of life in moral and spiritual safety because God has erected boundaries. You've identified those boundaries and you're living within them and you are completely free within them to do as you will. Completely free to love and enjoy life within the fence. And in that fence, God says, is everything that will truly make you happy. So our final point, enjoy the good as an extension of a life lived for God. Verses 18 to 20, Solomon writes this, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and drink. It's a good thing. And to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also, to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Look, enjoy the blessings that we have in this country. You realize nine out of ten people in the United States are living above the me, the, the, the average salary for the world, the, the average income for, for the world. Nine out of ten. Even those who are considered poor in this country have things that the middle class, sometimes even the wealthy of generations gone by couldn't even have imagined. And you can enjoy that. It's not wrong. Enjoy rest, enjoy life, enjoy wealth, enjoy health. But enjoy them as gifts from God, not as the end. Enjoy them as the means. Don't let them rule you. Don't allow them to draw you into sin. Don't seek pleasures that are outside of that fence. Pastor, but I like them. They make me happy. I know they do, but know this. You're trading temporal happiness for lasting satisfaction every time. You're yielding that which fully satisfies for a moment of pleasure, and it just isn't worth it. God's church has become somewhat lethargic and lazy So invested in culture that we cannot see enjoyment outside of the culture in which we live. So invested in the world that the things of God have no allure. If I could give you another illustration, we're like spiritual junk food addicts. The junk food is the stuff that you eat and it tastes really good, but then the sugar burns off really quickly. And not only does it, does it uh, it's not good for your body and and it, it puts on weight, but then you get hungry faster because it doesn't have any substance to it. And this is what we're like, oftentimes. At least the Western church is this way, aren't we? We're eating spiritual junk food. We're going from uh, pithy quote to pithy quote, from uh, concert to concert, from uh, from uh, conference to conference, and we're on this spiritual roller coaster like this. And, and we're we're staying with that which is shallow, but that which kind of resonates emotionally. And we're living in in the spiritual garbage of the world around us. We're eating the same stuff they are. Our our relationships aren't much better in the Christian world than they are in in the rest of the world. And the use of our time and and our our entertainment, our movie, video game consumption, um, our our, our music consumption. And all the while, what we do is we become spiritually fat and lazy. Because we've been feeding on nothing but spiritual junk food. And if we're all a bunch of spiritually fat and lazy Christians, then our children grow up and perhaps they don't even know what a, what a spiritually healthy Christian looks like because they've never tasted it. They've never seen it. And so we don't realize that if we begin to pursue a spiritually healthy, healthy lifestyle, I don't know if any of you have ever pursued kind of uh, if you, if you've changed your lifestyle to pursue more health, uh, as long as you know you don't take it too far and it it, it makes you very <laughs> it makes you hate life, um, you'll find that you'll actually begin to enjoy some of those foods that are better for you, and you'll exercise, and you'll find that you have more energy, and you feel better. And you can think better and you can get up in the mornings and, and, and all of these things and, and you realize, wait a minute, I, I, as, as I get healthier, I actually don't want to go back to the junk food. I actually am pretty happy here. The benefits outweigh the detriments. I don't even really crave those things that I once craved. All of those cravings have kind of fallen off. If we were to become spiritually healthy people... All of those desires for the world would, would fall away. And it would get to the point where you don't even crave the things that the world loves anymore. Because you're spiritually healthy and you know that you have something so much better in the fence of God's will than what they have on the outside. But we've got to take the step. We've got to go through the process of becoming spiritually healthy. Putting God's priorities above our own. And Solomon says for this man that will love the gifts of God within the context of God he'll not even remember the days of his life because God will answer him in the joy of his heart. All of the ins and outs it won't matter. He's just a contented man. He lived a life that was fully lived for the Lord. And so we consider a final point as we close. Man can find lasting satisfaction. I'm going to take you to Psalm 1 this week. We're just going to read the Psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, But the way of the ungodly shall perish. In your mind's eye you think of that tree that is planted by the rivers of water bringing forth fruit in its season and that sounds pretty good. That's a tree living in the fence of God's will. And the trees on the outside are tired and weather-beaten and worn and they don't bear fruit. But you have to believe it. You have to put yourself in that fence and you have to live there in order to reap the benefits some under the sound of my voice have never tasted the blessedness of living fully within the fence of God's will you don't even know what it tastes like would you Would you put yourself there and stay there some of us have known of that joy but then you've wandered outside that fence you know that's going to happen it happens. It's ha- it happens to me. My wife and I have to do at least a once a year inventory of our life and find the ways that we've wandered outside that fence and work ourselves. Uh, work, uh, put, take the, Get those things out and, and, and put ourselves back completely in that fence at least once a year. Uh, probably better to do it twice a year. To take a spiritual inventory. You once knew abundant life, but now it's only a memory. Would you put yourself back in that place of abundant life? Some of us are spiritually prospering right now. You're in the fence. You're, you're living that joy. You're actively working for the Lord. You're living a life of fullness within the bounds of God's character and will. You are living the abundant life. That, that's good. That's right. That's what you want. The man who is prosperous and blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of the scornful, but rather a man whose delight is defined by the bounds of God's character and will. The law of the Lord. This man is the man who is blessed. And David says it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That man shall also bear fruit. You want to bear fruit? Spiritual fruit? You want to lay up that treasure in heaven rather than on earth? This is how we do it. We delight in the law of the Lord. We delight in the bounds in which God has given us. And we live in them joyfully, contentedly. Knowing that what God has given us is what is best for us. And we couldn't be happier than when we're right where he wants us. Let's pray.